Hi, Janina. Hi, Emma. And welcome back to History of Sexy. Well, welcome to you two, I suppose. Yeah, welcome each other to History of Sexy. And also anyone else who is here, welcome to you. Yeah, we're really happy to have people here. <laughs> I like how smooth we are at openings. We're really we're so good at we're this. Really locking that down. We're naturals, professionals. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how are you, Janina? I'm all right. I'm all right. How are you? I'm not too bad. Um, I'm pretty good. I'm uh, mildly ashamed that we kind of forgot Oliver's wedding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so last week we said that we were going to do. This week we we're going to do one on the history of music and how music has changed and have um, a special guest. And then what happened was we forgot that Oliver, who edits everything, is getting married this week um, and is getting married in a foreign country and therefore is absolutely not available to edit a complicated music episode. <laughs> yeah, you can't really ask someone to do that. Well, you're in the middle of your, the, you know, your wedding yeah. reception. If you could just... <laughs> if you just take an hour out of your ceremony, like just in between the ceremony and reception. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And just, just edit some complicated bits, that'd be great. Um, <laughs> so we decided to bump that episode to next week. Um, when hopefully Oliver will be back Uh, and this week instead we are just going to do like lots of little short answer questions because we've got quite a few questions that were not quite enough for like a full episode to talk about for an hour but uh, were quite fun questions to answer anyway so Um, and we probably will do this fairly regularly because it's fun Uh, so if you have similar short questions do continue to send them to us and we'll compile them for next yes, time. Yes, please do. Um, yeah, because yeah, it's, it's been nice to go through and see what little short questions people have come up with that uh, are just things that appear to have come off the top of their head. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's quite fun. So, shall we get stuck in? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Okay. So, our first question comes from at Small Town Browse, otherwise known as Nick, on Twitter. Um, and this was actually in response to, I think, our World War One episode, um, mm-hmm. which was, you've mentioned inbreeding a lot with the old European families. How bad did it get? Was it like webbed feet and the like? <laughs> <laughs> um, which I'm pretty sure was in response to us talking about the Habsburgs. Um, sure. Shall we, shall we run through the Habsburgs and their impressive lineage of... <laughs> lineage of marrying oh. each other. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. What have you got? Um, I think you are more expert on them okay. than I am. I don't want to. Uh... Okay. So the Habsburgs were like the the ruling family of Europe for a very long time. Um, so for a good portion of the kind of fourteenth, fifteenth centuries, um, right into the sixteenth century, they were pretty much all of the Holy Roman Emperors were Habsburgs and they were came from the House of Habsburg, which is an Austrian family. Um and they basically managed to get a member of their family into virtually every royal family in Europe, um, and then consolidated power and kept it so that They kind of spread it across Europe, but consolidated it by making sure that the children of a marriage married the children of a marriage from another Habsburg so that there was always, the power always came back to the family, basically. So Um, basically everyone was cousins. Everyone was cousins, a lot of uncle-niece marriages. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, um, a lot of very close cousin marriages and people marrying 
nibblings. Yeah, it's kind mm-hmm. of gross. Um, and then, yeah, and ooh. and then once you then you would have the children of two cousins marrying their cousin in the next generation. So yeah, so all four parents would be cousins, uh, <laughs> and then the two children would be marrying, and then obviously they would have that would happen again and again and again. And they had a very very small gene pool. <laughs> uh, they were. They lasted a very long time for somebody with a remarkably small gene pool. Um, But it was still kind of disgusting. And it did end up badly, essentially. Um, And a thing that often comes up that is said about them is that their motto was... um, say it in latin first just to show off uh, bella garant ali to felix austria nube manke mars alice dat to be regnas venus which it's a is... very long motto i just want to say mostly mottos we like to keep it to four or five words just three three reference. words yeah, yeah just knock it off don't <laughs> why bother um it translates to roughly leave the waging of war to others but happy austria marry for the realms which mars awards to others mars being the god of war venus transfers to you Venus mm-hmm. being the god of love. Um, but it was actually... I did find that on quite a few sites and places, but it's actually said um, by a Hungarian king called Matthias Corvinus. Um, and it was actually a kind of slag on them, basically. Right. <laughs> uh, it was him saying... You're too lazy to fight, you just fucking did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. While he was at war with them, that's undermining his uh, own point. But <laughs> they were notorious at the time for being incesty. <laughs> yeah. Um. And it ended up, so they have one particular feature, which is called the Habsburg jaw, um, mm-hmm. which is where their jaw became massively overgrown, basically, sure. um, and would um, prop out so far that their bottom and top teeth didn't meet. That sounds um, uncomfortable. And, yeah, and if you look at, you know, if you Google the Habsburg jaw, that's the first thing will come up, and you can see all of the pictures. Um, and their their jaws are significant, and they are like pulling the bottom teeth quite a long way away from the top teeth. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the final kind of the last true Habsburg, um, so like the last pure Habsburg, basically, was Charles II of Spain, because they ruled Spain for a very long time. Um, whose parents were uncle and niece um, and all eight of his grandparents had descended from the same couple. Great. Yeah. It's always a great place to start. I think it's his, not his great, great, great grandparents. So like three generations up, but they were the same couple basically. So that's cousins marrying and then the children of those cousins marrying. And then, yeah. Yeah. And Which then, did end up in like serious health problems, not just not just yeah. large jaws. Not just large. Well, his jaw was so large that he couldn't eat properly and never really was able to speak clearly because his jaw just didn't meet properly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he was also, which is an extreme physical deformity. Then he also had. Um, his physical deformities were so bad that he wasn't able to walk until he was eight years old um and couldn't really stand up properly because he his bones were so weak and he was so kind of his legs were so kind of malformed basically um and he was extremely intellectually uh, disabled as well to the point where he never really learned to read or write he was king of spain <laughs> until he was 39 years old um and he they forced him to marry um a french princess um 
and then for- forced her to undergo lots of treatments which nearly killed her because they were desperate to get an heir out of this man um but he just he wasn't really capable of proper sex basically because mm-hmm. he was so ill um and eventually he had a nervous breakdown and died basically he just was not able to cope with the pressure of being king of spain because that's a job that take is quite a lot of work yeah um, uh, and he died at the age of 39 without having any heirs obviously because it was probably if not impotent then probably infertile yeah um and there's some quite good stuff so his um autopsy was recorded because he was notorious for being like for being someone who kind of baffled everybody as to how he lived he was so in that time you know he was so um so disabled that everyone just couldn't really believe particularly in the upper classes couldn't believe that he (laughs) was surviving essentially um yeah so his autopsy was released and this is obviously nonsense but it's still quite great anyway um his body did not contain a single drop of blood his heart was the size of a peppercorn (laughs) (laughs) his lungs corroded his intestines rotten and gangrenous he had a single testicle black as coal and his head was full of water (laughs) I mean, there are a couple of things there that definitely, if they were true, he would not have been alive. You do. It's true. You do need blood. <laughs> blood is one you, thing that you absolutely have to have in your body. I hear it's top five in the things <laughs> that you need. And I'm 100% sure that you need a heart bigger than a peppercorn. Yeah, peppercorns are absurdly small. <laughs> They're very small. Uh, so, But that's like, that's how much incest like destroyed him essentially that that was believable as what his insides looked like yeah um or who knows whether people actually believed it but it was believable <laughs> enough to say um yeah, yeah. weirdly though his half sister were seemed to be basically fine um like they all just piled up in him he whereas a lot of the rest of the family got like a couple of these recessive genes come mm-hmm. through and give them the big jaw to make things hard or made them just a bit thick. Um, yeah. I mean, I he, guess it's just, is a lottery, isn't it? Where you're just yeah. tipping the odds in the wrong direction with incest, where you'll end up with too much matched genes, too many matched yeah. genes. But you might get lucky. <laughs> get... You might get lucky. And his and... half-sister ended up all right. Yeah. Uh, but so... possibly she was not the daughter of an uncle and niece. It might have been slightly more. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it was quite something. Um, God bless him. Yeah. Poor old Charles. I feel bad for him. Uh, his life, every minute of those 39 years of life must have just been painful. Super painful. It makes you think of like... Um, ridiculously purebred dogs like um yeah that can't because they're that can't breathe properly because like pugs like pugs where they just just looks like every breath is painful yeah it is and their brain their head is so small and their face is so squished that their brain is constantly being forced into their eye sockets which is why their eyes bulge out and pop sometimes um i used to be an old housemate a few years ago um, used to call me Pug Hitler because I was like all pugs that are not being bred ethically because this is an ethical breeding like yeah. to have something that's in that much pain and who has a chance of like like their 
brain is in their nasal cavity like they can't breathe um i said they should all just be euthanized for their own good um and there are you know ethical breeders who breed pugs properly and make sure that they are not being born like this um and she used to call me pug hitler because of that was like no it's cruel it's terrible it's evil (laughs) to let dogs live like this because you think it's cute yeah well it's like it is this degree of incest within your own family it's also kind of feels like unethical breeding because you are you are sentencing your offspring to yes and forcing discomfort yeah forcing him then to effectively breed with some woman who they then blamed for everything (coughs) and nearly killed her with fertility treatments in inverted comment um like a lot of this um like this Habsburg stuff and a lot of the ruling families of Europe during this period just kind of completely horrible uh because it is essentially the same as dog breeding like they're making sure that the genetics are kept within the family and making sure that everybody has a pure bloodline which means that everybody ends up fucking someone they definitely shouldn't be fucking (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah Uh, but they're not alone not alone at all no and what i found interesting about researching this is how often it seems to be a a specifically privilege of the monarchy especially in non-european um places like for example in zimbabwe it was a it was incest was punishable by death for everyone uh, except the king who kept thousands and thousands of wives um, and the most prized would be his sisters and daughters who were nice. his wives um, and it was it was a royal privilege uh, in the Hawaiian war- royal family so people like um, Princess uh, Nahainai Na I think that's right I'm very sorry if it's not um, she married her brother and had a daughter by him but the daughter was so sickly that she died shortly after birth which i don't know if that is because she that was also several generations worth of incest but it yeah. seems like it could be likely um and then king rama of uh, the fifth of siam had 150 wives and concubines and again deliberately prized the four who were his half sisters it's we- yeah it's it's weirdly common among royal families specifically even if it's outlawed uh, yes for the rest of the population like the the classic thing that always comes up um i say classic thing the thing the classic thing that always comes up when you're me is um the the egyptian rulers in um Hellen- hellenistic times so after alexander the great conquered egypt um and he put in charge the Ptolemaic family the Ptolemies mm-hmm. um, and they would for generations married their brothers and sisters so Cleopatra our Cleopatra that everybody thinks of as Cleopatra was married to her brother didn't she marry two of her brothers? yeah um, and so and that was considered to be normal because essentially the thought is that the only person who is worthy of your bloodline is mm-hmm. a member of your family like there's no better family yeah and you don't want to dilute your bloodline or your power by letting in other families. Because if, I, if I'm if i the queen and I marry somebody else, then their family has access to power and our children will be equally of their family as they are of my family. And therefore that dilutes everything. So it's much better yeah. to marry the, a brother or a cousin 
and then our children will be members of the family. Um, and they just didn't of, know. <laughs> the logic of when you look at things like the Tudor court, which was just full of families trying to desperately marry off their children into the royal family so they could have <laughs> yeah, more power, exactly. which obviously led to a lot of problems. But And then you know, everybody was like, the, the rational response to everybody desperately trying to get power by marrying you is to marry somebody who already has the same amount of power as you. Yeah. Um, and that, that kills off any ambition and stops people killing each other. And this, to be fair to them, like they didn't know that about no. recessive genes. They <laughs> presumably could work it out, but uh, after a while that this wasn't going well, but they didn't know what was causing it really. Um, yeah, thank goodness for medical research. Thank goodness for medical research. Um, yeah. All right. So that's question one. You've got um, Alexi, the. Um, oh, yeah. The, I think Oliver put that in. Yeah. Um, um, the Alexi, the prince of Russia, the last prince of Russia who was killed um, in, in the Russian Revolution, um, had haemophilia um, as probably as a result of the massive amounts of inbreeding. Um yeah, and so, and hemophilia is a terrible disease. Everybody yeah. thinks it's just like, oh, if you get a nosebleed, you're never going to stop dying. But the problem is bruising. Um, yeah, like if you're bru, if you're bruised, that's internal bleeding, and you will normally, you and I will clear that up real quick. Like, say, so well, that's why you only get a small bruise. But if you are a hemophiliac and you bump your arm, um, then you yeah. can potentially never stop bleeding inside. <laughs> it's no good. It's no fun. It's no good. No good. Uh, yeah, but basically it got quite bad and people died and it was gross. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so that's that question. Uh, so what is question number two? Oh, my, it's my turn to read it out, isn't it? It's your turn, it's your turn to we discuss this. Oh, this professionalism. Is... Remember this professionalism. Is... <laughs> <laughs> it's never going to happen, Emma. <laughs> So I believe this is from your friend, John. Mm-hmm. Uh, simply put, what is the smallest hill you would die on? What argument theory will you take to your grave? Um, my answer to this question is probably the same as it was to um, the one we did in like episode four or five, which is that Caligula um, did not make his horse a console. Like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> and I know it doesn't matter. Um, and I still just get so mad. <laughs> um, like I get so angry about it, and I've, I'm bet I'm I'm calmer now, but it still makes me so fucking angry when I see it. Uh, <laughs> he didn't make his horse a senator or a consul. He may have given him a big golden stable, but that's a different thing. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't actually translate to power. <laughs> yeah. Um, the theory I will take to my grave even though I can never prove it is that women were bonking each other constantly throughout history and just never wrote it down oh 100% yeah um, but that's I mean it's such a small and pointless hill and, yeah. and but I will were I general custer I would be there with my sword being like <laughs> I'll take you all <laughs> <laughs> that's fair enough yeah what's um, yours so i have a recent one well it's not a recent one it's um one that i had never heard the story before recently and then nicole cliff was tweeting about it um which is the first time i heard about it but um i 100 percent that believe that ted kennedy <laughs> murdered mary joe because uh, he 100 percent murdered her and i'm pretty sure it was planned oh wow yeah. Go on, please please elaborate well it just none of it like adds up she didn't take her keys or her purse with her, so he can't have been driving her home. 
So just to be clear, this is the car crash. This is the car crash where... where and, um, it, and he, he survived and she died. He, yeah, he survived. He claimed he was driving her home after this very interesting sounding party full of old married men and young single women. Oh, um, a classic the- <laughs> party that I always go to. Yeah, on the island of uh, Chappaquiddick, I think. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if... I'm pronouncing that one. It's what, that's right. one of those weird islands that only rich people in America go to. Yeah, it's a rich person holiday island. There was a party of uh, rich politicians and young women. And he was driving her in her car, drove off a bridge um, and escaped and left her there to drown. Um, although she actually died of suffocation, I think. She was in an air pocket and she died when it ran out of air. Oh, no. I know. That's horrid. It's really awful. Um, apparently it would have taken her a couple of hours to die, and if he had told mm. someone when it happened, she would have been completely fine. There was a diver, a certified diver, within 20 minutes that could have oh, um, that could have saved her, and he was the one who ended up um, extricating her from the car, um, and he said, if he called me at the time, she would have been mm. completely fine. But, yeah, he claimed he, she was... He was dropping her back at her hotel, but she had left all of her things at the party. She didn't take anything with her. Um, he didn't tell anyone until he was asked about it. And even then he was like, he went back to his hotel room for a while and then went back. It's very shady. And hmm. I... Why would he kill her? Well, I'm assuming because of some sort of fucked up sexual thing. Like maybe he had assaulted her at the party or something. And okay. Something like that is my theory. That's a good theory. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know nothing about it, so I'm going to agree with you. Sure. I've got about 150 yeah. theories that I will probably die on to do with true crime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's very fair. I think, um, yeah, just he, no. he straight uh, up murdered that girl. I also, I believe, and this is much, I mean, not that that previous one is defensible but this is much less defensible <laughs> i think that henry the eighth genuinely loved anne boleyn oh okay i don't think he loved any of the others but and this but may boleyn. be just the result of having read too many historical romances as a, te- as a teenager you just read a lot of philippa gregory i read so much philippa gregory <laughs> nothing wrong with that philippa but also Gregory's like amazing i feel like they had an internet intellectual connection like they they argued about things. She was very intelligent and into like theology, and I think yeah, I think there was more of a more going on with them that they just liked each other more, if anything else. I I think so. Um, Is that it, why the betrayal was so bad? Like that he felt that he needed to behead her rather than just divorce her. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Well, like he, his love for her completely upset all the stability in his life and indeed the kingdom. So everything was her fault, obviously. <laughs> That's how it goes. <laughs> it's always women. We've learned that from everything. Um, everything no matter what a man does. Um, yep. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, right. It would be great if that hadn't stopped being, if like if that had stopped being the case by this point, but it clearly it absolutely has not. Has not. Um, not even slightly. <laughs> um, okay, next question. Oh, before I do that, um, John also asked, what's the greatest historical inaccuracy in TV or film? Um, and my answer to that is the one that annoys me the most is the bit in Gladiator where Marcus Aurelius says he's going to restore the Republic. Um, that made me almost walk out of the cinema. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. 
Um, it's just on so many levels. You don't want me to talk for two and a half hours about why that's not true. Um, but it just fucking pisses me off. I remember being very, very disappointed when I started studying history at high school and had to confront the fact that Braveheart was not true, any of it, really, <laughs> at all. Not even a bit of it, no. Yeah. I mean, William mm. Wallace existed, that part was true. And he was hung, drawn, and quartered. Yeah. That part is true. That's about that, it. That's literally it, yeah. Um, yeah. But it makes it a good film. And, you know, Gladiator makes for a good film. And there, somebody did an interesting study recently where they looked at, like, when certain films and TV programs to do with classical world came out and then compared that to enrollment in undergraduate programs in classics and ancient history. Um, and Gladiator had such a huge effect on really? bumping the numbers. Like so many people took up, like you can, it's like 2000 Gladiator comes out like three years later, then the chart just goes like 400% up. It's crazy. That's amazing. All of those people really should be disillusioned by how incorrect Gladiator was. I mean, they were all there ready to be like, well, huh, we were lied to. Um, yeah. <laughs> actually, you know, Commodus was great fun. So they probably yeah. were like, well, this is actually a lot more interesting. And also there's even more good stories. So... <laughs> um, Okay, so yeah. next question is one we've actually had for a while. Um, I was from X Red Tim X. Um who asks, has there ever been a sexier republic than the Serenissima Republica di Venezia? Um, which would be, is the most serene republic of Venice? To which my answer is no, there's no sexier name, I don't yeah, think. I don't, you can't, you definitely can't beat that, especially when you throw in um, some of the names of the people. Like, this is basically, Italy does very good names. It does, um, there, and there's something really good about the the way that it's said in Italian. Like you can say "most serene republic of Venice," and it sounds like I don't know. It sounds really bog standard, like someone's going to chase some whippets or something, or I don't know. Ferrets are involved. It's, it sounds awful in English, but "Serenissima Repubblica di Venezia" sounds amazing. Yeah. Like, that sounds like someone's going to give me a load of wine and there's going to be people in, like, diaphanous see-through gauzy robes. Yeah, yeah. Men and women. And they're going to be flirting and exchanging witty repartees left, right and centre. Yeah. The only one I could think of that that could be as sexy would be the broadly contemporary uh, Republic of Florence, which is where the Medici were lurking about. Yeah. Um, That's where they were centred. And, like, there's, like, like... Obviously, everything to do with the Medici is sexy as hell. Yeah, yeah. And again, uh, Italy. Just, you know, it's it's a cliche, but... Yeah. But I decided in the end that the Republic of Venice wins because it gets to be the most serene republic. Yeah, um, that adds something. The, the Republic of Florence was mostly coups and the Medici killing other families and or killing each other. And so they never got to be called the most serene republic. So, mm. yeah. Well, there you go. No. Venice wins. No, there hasn't. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was my answer. I also found out that the um, most serene republic of San Marino is one of the oldest republics in the world because it was founded in 301. Which oh, is wow. Pretty old. Um, and it's also the only country in the world with more vehicles than people. That Well, that seems unnecessary. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, don't know if that makes it sexy. I think I find cars deeply unsexy. But if I mean, like that depends cars, on the car, Emma. Well, now, John, who asked question two, um, 
is one of my oldest friends and he loves cars and so does his daughter who's my goddaughter and they both just fucking love cars so i feel like they would consider san marino to be much sexier Mm -hmm. um because it's just so many cars for them to look at but i think that all cars look broadly the same except for fiat 500s which are adorable (laughs) it's fair so yeah (laughs) yeah so the answer to that one is no No. it is the sexiest republic it wins um the next question is uh from at cabal on Twitter, who had the sexiest facial hair in the American Civil War? Well, we looked at a lot of galleries. Um, yeah. And you have just written here, holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot going on. I like this guy. Um, this is not my pick. I'm just going to cycle through some who are interesting. There's this guy called George Crook, who has a beard that just points out and down to each sides in, in a point. And then yeah. it's quite short just under his chin. It's very impressive. Yeah, there were quite a few like that, like that were just, yeah, like they they didn't really cover the whole face. They were just sort of like really massive and pointing down and out, but not really on the face at all. It looked like they were holding on by like two hairs on the face. I think my least favourite thing is the full beard with no moustache. I find that deeply upsetting to look at. Yeah, so do I. I find it disconcerting and I'm not sure why. Yeah, um, it's very I odd. Don't, mm, it just—I don't know. It just looks like it's sort of hanging there. I there's one guy called Major General John Pope who has—it's not a full beard, but it's like—it's like if you had a goatee and grew that goatee really long, like you're in a 2001 new metal band, <laughs> but then shaved off the moustache part of the goatee, so he looks like he's in disturbed, but <laughs> but just on his like off the cuff of his chin and then the rest of his face is completely clean shaven and i find it really distressing um there's a guy here also called um where's he gone john haskell king who has a very sleek shiny sort of bob haircut (laughs) and then a, a mustache which is very bushy and just grows into his hair and because his hair is so sleek and shiny and falls so gently around the sides of his face it actually just looks like his hair is growing up yes. and under his nose rather than the other way around you see that yeah that one's weird i really like so we'll put links to these in the show notes because they're really good fun to look at but the, um this guy is on that the american civil war um and general george s green um, and he has the exact same haircut as my boyfriend when I was 19, when hair straightening <laughs> was really big for boys. Um, but then that just has, I don't know what it is about his moustache. It's like, the way that it's going up is marvellous. You know what it looks exactly like? It looks like that fake moustache that Kenneth Branagh is wearing in the newest Orient Express Oh, yeah, film. the sort of with the double flip. Yeah, with the double flick gut bend, really massive. And then he's got a, like a pointy Satan beard as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Always love a pointy Satan beard. Yeah, but we both have chosen ones that we actually think are quite sexy. Yes, we um, have. And they're both slightly different. So mine is James James Ewell Brown Stewart. Um, and it's mostly, he's just got a really big, thick beard. Um, but it's the only one that looks like he took care of it. <laughs> yeah, none of none of these men have heard of beard oil, and it's a damn shame. <laughs> oh, a lot of them haven't even heard of beard trimming. Like, mm-hmm. it's terrible. Um, 
whereas his is just it's ve- it looks very soft and luxurious and i just sort of want to put my face on it a mm-hmm. little bit and it's really dark and black as well like a lot of these ones are quite gray also he had he was called jeb beauty um which i like <laughs> That's um, very good. probably because of the marvelous beard I don't know. It just looks. It just looks very. His hair's terrible. Like his hair's got some kind of extremely bizarre, very far across his head parting. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot is... of bad partings with yeah. the impressive facial hair, and it's a it's a shame. They're very dramatic, is the thing. Um, so they they're not just off to the right hand side. They're like pretty much next to the ear. Yeah, and they all seem very slicked down with with some sort of thing that's making them very flat. Yeah, they were slicking their hair and not oiling their beards. Oiling they their should beards. have been doing the opposite. Yeah. So I've mm. gone with General Fitz John Porter. Yeah. Uh, who just has a really nice, normal-looking beard. It looks very soft. It looks, you know, just just comfortable. It's trimmed, which is nice. It is. shaped properly around his chin. He also has terrible hair. He could, he could loosen that <laughs> up a bit, give it a bit more body. Um, he could. Um, but, no, he looks like like a sexy dad he does look like um, a sexy dad you can like see if, him wandering around in jeans and a flannel shirt just quietly doing the diy around the house yeah absolutely yeah. um and it may, like bringing you a nice cup of coffee and yeah. like picking his kids up and you'd be like oh yeah and when you um, went to kiss him you wouldn't be stabbed with a million tiny needles yeah which is good because the rest of these like you'd get a rash really yeah, quickly really quickly the one that really blew my mind was Major General Winfield Scott Hancock, um, who was described in the... This is one is from the Smithsonian catalogue. Um, <laughs> was described as the handsomest man in the United States Army. Um, and he looks precisely like a corpse. Um, <laughs> he looks like he has died and been resuscitated and that he possibly... I don't know. He just... He's not a handsome man. His beard is terrible. Like, it's just a f- kind of flap of coming, like, down just from the lip, just, like, the middle of the lip. It's like if you took, like, a toothbrush moustache, put it on the bottom, and then let it grow really long. Mm-hmm. It looks bizarre. He is, by far, one of the least attractive people I've ever seen in my life. Um, <laughs> I wonder how um, they got to that that decision or this this particular man regist- registered Trobland? Like, did he did he audition men? Did he go around hunting for handsome soldiers? I mean, evidently not. Maybe it's the only one he saw. Maybe um, it is. It's like, oh, there's a man. He says he's very loud as well. So he's just a horrible looking man with a terrible facial hair yeah. shouting. Yeah, um, so. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so... The ones that we like are the ones that take care of themselves, basically. A lot of the rest of them look like they have grown it out. Um, The reason that I think, I say I think, I know that Dan chose the American Civil War as this particular period is because um, sideburns were kind of invented at this period. So sideburns are named after Major General Ambrose Burnside, who had enormous sideburns like <laughs> not just big that they took up a lot of his face but like they go out really far mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they're like they're properly long and they go they look like a little shelf a he, hair shelf coming out the side of his head he must have combed them like that deliberately right yeah like, i assume so because i don't think that they would go out like that naturally no um mm, yeah 
so but they were so spectacular that, that they got stuck out like that i always just assumed that that name came because they're on the side of your face yeah, so did I. Uh, literally, never occurred to me that yeah. uh, <laughs> that it might be named after, or that that what they did was take his name and flip it backwards. Yeah, Burnside sidebands. That's where they got. That's how they got there. Don't really know how. I mean, um, maybe calling them Burnsides just sounded a bit awkward. It does. I'm assuming it started off as Burnsides and then gradually got turned into yeah. sideburns. Hmm. Odd. Uh, anyway, those are the sexiest ones. Take care of yourself, <laughs> man. Don't just grow a massive beard and think like we should have learned this from the new series of Queer Eye for a Straight Guy with the gay guy in like episode four or five, where he's got the beard and he looks like a homeless person, and then they just literally cut it very, very slightly, and then he's the handsomest man in the world. It's all you need: some light shaping. Just take care of light. Sh- it's really all we ask for. Yeah. Just put a little bit of effort in and it makes such a difference. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's uh, clothing <laughs> advice for men and beard <laughs> advice for men from Erin and Janina, two women who do not grow beards. No. But do fancy men, so our opinion counts. There you go. Um, okay, question five comes from Fence Master. I don't know if he's a master of fencing or a master of fences, but um, mm-hmm. I like it. Maybe just um, the master of one fence. Maybe it's just the one fence. Maybe he had a really big fight with a fence. <laughs> <laughs> He's really proud of winning. It's conquered you. Uh, um, he asked, were vegetarians catered for in the past? That includes fish, which is practically a vegetable. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Um, no one can be bothered to remember the word pescatarian in this world. It's, no, it's true. It's true. It's complicated. Yeah. Um, but the... That's kind of a difficult question because vegetarian uh, vegetarianism as a kind of ethical principle of like non-violence towards animals um, existed only very rarely in mm. the past um, and it existed more in the East than it did in the West. Um, I think as well, like having so many, such a variety of... Uh, vegetables and non other non-meat products available to you depends very much on where you are yes like um to a large extent meat is a luxury for most people Mm. Uh, it's not now because we have farming to an extent which was would be unimaginable in almost any civilization in the past um like the sheer amount of meat that is produced and the sheer amount of land that we are able to dedicate to meat rather than grain is enormous. Uh, <laughs> and we have much better, more productive farming techniques for animals as well. Yeah. But for 99.9% of people in the past, you had two cows and if you killed one of them, then you only had one cow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and even in kind of grand sweeping empires like the Roman Empire where they could import meat, it's still, it's imported, so it's expensive. Yeah. Um, and so it, the vast majority of people would have probably mostly a vegetarian diet anyway and meat would be something for one or two days a week at most. Yeah, um, like a special Sunday slab of meat to share amongst family yeah exactly i mean i always like i always think when people say in the past i always just assume they're talking about classical history (laughs) study um but 
like when you you have a few people who promoted vegetarianism like pythagoras who is proper crackers bless him um i believe that maths was like a divine thing um Mm -hmm. which is obviously bonkers (laughs) (laughs) Um, and they were um they were vegetarian and um early christians were predominantly vegetarian because the way that most people got meat was to sacrifice uh, an animal to a god Mm -hmm. um or when there was a big festival they would sacrifice a lot of animals and then that meat would be part of the festival feast um and christians didn't eat wouldn't eat meat that had been sacrificed which meant that they pretty much didn't eat meat Mm -hmm. um which we're going to talk about more in literally the next question but (laughs) (laughs) but yeah so basically yes because there was so much it wasn't as ubiquitous as it is now um yeah but there just wasn't you couldn't go to a supermarket and buy a steak yeah i think in general most people ate whatever was available for them to eat <laughs> yeah pretty much yeah. Um, you can't, you... it's not like you could import you know avocados from from florida because yeah uh because that like, you couldn't um yeah. nobody knew that florida existed no one no time. one knew <laughs> i mean some, <laughs> some people knew but the rest of us didn't know that they existed so um, europeans did not know they yeah. existed um i mean and when you get empires that span huge amounts of space then you get foods being imported that are fancy um like fancy persian fruits and fancy spices and you know potatoes coming from america to tudor england um but they are only for people that can afford to buy something which has been that someone sailed a really long way to pick up and then sailed all the way back um and so it's not like something that you can just nip out and pick up some strawberries at any time of the year, basically. <laughs> um, so yeah, basically, to be they fair, take you can't well. you can't just nip out and pick up strawberries at any time of the year in New Zealand, even now. Well, that's what happens when you live really far away. From I know. Anywhere. I I kind of <laughs> like that though because it means when strawberries appear, it's very exciting. So not that, that's true. It's a novelty. I do often think about how like disconnected. Like, I have absolutely no idea what the growing cycles for most vegetables are because they're always available in Tesco. Yeah. I, don't know what, um, I don't know what seasonal food is anymore. Yeah, um, and we're thinking about starting an allotment and looking at, like, planting cycles and stuff and being like, because that's how old I am now. <laughs> an uh, and just being like, oh, look, we can have, like, seasonal food, like... I don't know, rustic people, how exciting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I'm a city girl and I don't know how things work anymore. No, no, no. Um, Yeah, so there were people who were vegetarians and there were people who were ethically very anti-hurting animals, Um, like Hinduism and a lot of uh, Indian religions are kind of very... um, Like Jainism is one of the oldest religions in the world that still exists and it is against hurting any kind of animal ever to the extent that in the dark... You're supposed to put gauze over um, over water in case you accidentally drink a an animal like a mite that that flies into your water. I mean, is that protecting you or the animal at that point? <laughs> I would not like to. I would prefer not to drink a mite in my water. The main argument is for the animals, and they also <laughs> don't eat root vegetables because they don't want to. Um, they don't believe in disturbing the earth that insects are in so if you take potatoes or garlic out of the earth and you're disturbing the 
um, the insects that live in the earth. So um, what, they don't what eat any. Do, do they, are they not worried about insects that live above the earth? No, not so much. Well, yes, okay. they are in that Jane monks um, don't wear shoes and stuff. So then they walk very carefully. So they're never stepping on insects. And um, mm-hmm. they put quite a lot of effort into being ethically, like, like trying their best, basically. Like yeah. if you kill one by accident, then you, you're sad about it. But you do your best in a lot of ways to, sure. um, to avoid it. Yeah. And that's a very ancient religion. Um, so they were around. It's just... And it's but it's not that hard to be like that when um when meat is less available. Yeah. Yeah. Um right. Um, question. So the next one is from Albert Berg on Twitter. What was the early observance of communion like in practice? See, that sounds great for me. Um, yeah, because this is this is your thesis, right? This is my, well part sort of it, of. kind of. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's just nothing. It means that I got to go and fish out some um, uh, very early Christian apologies, and I love Christian apologies, uh, <laughs> which are basically like a very early Christians writing to emperors um, and to officials and trying to explain what Christianity is in order to they're in order to stop the emperors from persecuting them mm-hmm. they they seemed to really hold on to a quite adorable belief that if only people would understand what they were doing properly they'd stop killing them <laughs> um, again something that still doesn't work it will never work because um, it's not that the emperors didn't necessarily understand it mm-hmm. they just didn't give a shit yeah um, and they saw them as weird and dangerous and like people who did things that weren't normal um they were not a kind and inclusive people <laughs> the moment. um and so there's quite a few like explanations and descriptions of the eucharist originally um it's very handy of the early christians to do all this work for for future historians they were they did like to but part of it's because they were writing stuff down in order to work it out to a large extent mm-hmm. um and so, also i guess part of it was part of it to share between churches that were like geographically yeah. far apart like i mean the yeah. whole the whole of the new testament is, is letters to early christians telling them how to telling be them christians off yeah <laughs> <laughs> most of it's telling them off and being like i see what you're doing there stop yeah, it stop it <laughs> i am poor um, i have so many opinions yeah and a lot like some of it is like clement of rome who comes a little bit like after paul who writes a load of letters also to the corinthians being like oh look guys we've talked about this <laughs> <laughs> Um, but one of the very earliest is uh, from the first century um, CE, which is called the Didash, which is a kind of, um, it's almost like a handbook of apostolic teachings. So from the apostles and the words and, and actions of the apostles and then trying to write down like what you should be doing. Um, and that has the very first reference um to the Eucharist and it's very clear that the Eucharist is a meal it's not what it is what communion is now where you take a wafer and you take a sip of wine or um, bread depending on your denomination or bread. yeah um or whatever it is um so it is very clearly um a full meal that you are having which includes bread and wine where the bread is the um the bread is the body of Christ and the um, wine is the um, the blood of Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so there is, they have the prayers that they say at the beginning and they're quite different from the ones now. So you say um, different things over the cup and over the 
bread and then you they all eat it together and then at the end of the meal um you offer thanks um to jesus for feeding them basically Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's clear that it was very much like uh, where everyone sat down um, and had a meal together um, it's kind of nicer than modern communion because it's very much also about it's not about a communion with christ necessarily or solely it's also about communion with fellow people and that's really nice don't yeah we can't Um, do it in the same way anymore no um it's much of it much less about the community of people but then the communities were so much smaller like that's yeah. back in when they had house churches and so you would go to someone's house and have mm-hmm. your and you would do it on a sunday and you would go together and there'd just be a very small number of you um and then by the time we get to kind of the late second century uh, we get the first things which look like recognizable communion um, and that's from Justin Martyr, who wrote an apology to Antoninus Pius, making it one of the one and only times Antoninus Pius, an emperor who ruled for 23 years, actually gets mentioned in history. Because um, <laughs> he was so boring that people forget he exists. <laughs> um, um, but he did do a bit of persecuting. And so Justin Martyr wrote this really long um, apology to him just explaining what Christianity is and being like no we don't like people say that we do this but we don't this is exactly what we do mm-hmm. um, and so he describes that they have prayers and then they kiss each other presumably on the cheek but possibly on the mouth um, and then they have the wine and a bit of bread and then deacons speak over them and give um, and offer thanks at considerable length uh, <laughs> which sounds bitter to me um and then they um then they have a portion basically is what he calls it and if your people aren't there then a, a member of their family or a friend can take away their portion for them um which is new yeah that's uh, nice yes so um so that's like the first time that you see it as being part of a larger community um mm-hmm. and where it's kind of first called the eucharist properly um and where it is a church thing rather than a community of people thing um so yeah so originally it looked very um very much just like a like the last supper almost um and then it but it quite quickly evolved into people taking it as they do today and taking a portion of the bread um and and a portion of wine of a short ceremony within a thing rather than yeah um making it of itself yeah yeah Yeah, exactly um and being inside a a particular place dedicated to this and having actual deacons who oversee it rather than just whoever's house is yeah Uh, okay so the next question is um from 100 pc londoner i'm assuming that's 100 percent londoner um but he asked or it's 100 cops Oh, it might be 100 cops in London all mm. sharing the same account. Yeah. We can't say we can't, either we way. We can't say. Mm, it might be. Um, and he asked, or she asked, sorry, um, are there any records of women voting before 1832 taking up the property qualification requirement? Um, I'm going to guess he meant after 1832 um, or meant before 1918. <laughs> because 1918 is when everyone over the age of 30 could vote. Um mm-hmm. But in 
1832, there was a Parliamentary Reform Act, and then in 1835, there was the Municipal Corporations Act, both of which changed voting structures, basically, um, and, like, introduced boroughs and things. Mm -hmm. Um, And they allowed anyone who was a head of household who paid rates, which is kind of council tax, to vote. Um, But whereas earlier legislation had said anyone all male persons who are the head of the household Mm -hmm. they forgot to put the word male in um which meant that certain women were eligible to vote uh and some of them found out about this and got on the (laughs) registers um which is nice so the first um women that we have that we know who were involved were in lichfield in uh west midlands which is a lovely city is that i've Um, been no one's ever been because <laughs> it sounds like a shithole and it's like just outside of it's like just outside of Birmingham um, mm-hmm. but it is lovely it's so beautiful it's got a lovely cathedral um, loads of martyrs were killed there by Bloody Mary mm-hmm. um, but it's a really beautiful city um, people should go there for a day to visit it's lovely um, when I was at university in Birmingham we used to go out there every so often and have a nice trip um, <laughs> Yeah, and you're quite near Iron Bridge as well. You can go to Iron Bridge, the first Iron Bridge. <laughs> Again, that sounds shit. What a creative name. But it's great. Uh, Iron Bridge is cracking. Um, anyway, um, they recently have been found in 1843, 30 women were registered to vote. Um, so that's women who were widowed, and had inherited their husband's property or mm-hmm. had inherited their own property and therefore were the head of the household mm-hmm. um, and so were eligible to vote and women who were single but had their own business um, who, yeah, but we don't know if they actually voted is the thing, they're on the poll records right. but there's no record of whether they actually voted but um, there are 30 women there but the first person who is considered to be a woman who casted a casted cast a vote um is a woman called lily maxwell in the excellently named chorlton upon medlock there's a tongue twister and a half it is the most english place name (laughs) (laughs) like chorlton upon medlock um yeah, and in 1867, she found out that she was eligible to vote. Um, and that's back in the day when you didn't have private booth voting. Like, you had to show up at a meeting and stand up and say who you were voting for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she rolled up and voted for Jacob Bright, who was a liberal, um, who supported women's suffrage. That's... Uh, and that's really cool. It isn't it cool? And then she um, got a round of applause after she had voted because everyone was so pleased. Um, <laughs> and then, kind of, early suffragists made a big thing out of her case and like uh, made made it clear to other people, used her as an example, basically, mm-hmm. and publicised the fact that she had voted, that she could vote. Um, and four, five thousand women, as a result, were encouraged, encouraged to register to vote. And from then on, it became more common. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, so women were voting before 1918. Um, you just had to be in a specific... I'd say specific uh, position, but the women who were registered to vote, when they're not like aristocratic women, because aristocratic women were never heads of household. They yeah. are like middle-class women, like 
Grace Brown, the butcher. Um, yeah. And Caroline Edge, the laundress. So basically um, the rare women who were autonomous. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they're, they're kind of business women, basically. They're women who own or run... Like, Lily Maxwell, I think, owned a, a shop selling, like, knickknacks. Um, and the only other time that she appears in any records is when she was um, in court for ripping people off with weights and measures. She had, like, weighted scales um, oh wow so uh, <laughs> yeah um, and she was fined a pound <laughs> um, um that is great yes there's a but, great so were... uh, like record to have left of yourself one you were the first official <laughs> woman to cast a vote in the yep. uk and yep. uh two you were fined a pound for cheating people <laughs> for being a cheat yeah <laughs> um and there is a photo of her and she looks really grumpy <laughs> She looks like contrast you absolutely would not cross. Um, fantastic. Yeah, um, so yeah, there you go. Yes. Yeah. Um, so next question is from at Curly Hooligan on Twitter. What examples are there of older technology in some cultures being considered better than newer technology in other or later cultures? Yeah. It's a really um, good question. It is a good question. Um, and the obvious ones are Roman concrete, which is like considerably better than modern concrete Um, what made it so good it's just ridiculously strong like something to do with the um the composition of it just resists erosion basically okay because this is Uh, one of the things that i always forget and then remember again out of nowhere is how (laughs) difficult it is to make concrete like yeah the formula is very very uh, specific and if you if you are wrong by a very small degree and when you're mixing it then it's just going to be shit it just crumbles away yeah yeah it's a real chemical process making concrete um so it's interesting that the romans had a better one better yeah formula. and they also had uh it's also very um intensive in terms of energy like it's not that easy it's not that easy to make in terms of how much energy it takes to make it, basically. Yeah. So you have to be quite a rich civilization to be able to put the energy in to make it and not be wasting that, like, fire and stuff somewhere else. Yeah. Um, the other one that I immediately thought of is one that I learned about in um, my A-level, which is basically Greek anti-earthquake foundations. Um, so one of the reasons why so many greek temples still survive on mainland greece and still like the um are still looking pretty good um Mm -hmm. when they haven't been literally knocked over by humans or bombed during world war ii um is that they were built on foundations not of solid rock but of gravel right so So whenever there were earthquakes because it's quite it's a reasonably like not volcanic was when tectonic area Mm -hmm. um it, the gravel kind of absorbs it, absorbs the yeah, um, and kind of disperses it along the gravel instead of solid rock foundations kind of sending the shock waves up through and then taking over the wobbly pillars. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. This is the which thing is, you want sort of fluid, movable foundations, not yeah, rigid ones exactly um and so that's why so many of them survived for so long and then like just got knocked over in the 20th century (laughs) um or british people turned up and went that survived very well hasn't it how pretty i shall take it home with me 
Ash will yeah. give you two shoes uh, and well an apple. done, the British Empire. <laughs> I know, aren't we terrible? So, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there's lots, Dem- of, there's lots of stuff as well from ancient Greece that is current still. Like, Archimedes' screw is still yeah. a perfectly valid method of transporting water. Yeah. Is, yeah. Um, yeah. The aqueducts will say... Like the way that they built aqueducts uh, in order to use gravity to move water for very long distances. Yeah. Um, Damascus steel is the thing that like everyone talks about as well, that it's both plastic and very, very hard and nobody really knows how they made it. <laughs> um, a bit like a medieval Persian steel swords. Nobody knows really how they, um, yeah. how they got it so that it was had the exact composition that it had and managed to be both bendy and incredibly hard at the same time i'm gonna assume magic probably magic um i seem to remember reading somewhere but i couldn't find it this morning when i was having a brief look that um it was some kind of um ore that they basically ran out of so they used oh wow that's super interesting like the idea of Running out of stuff seems ridiculous. Even like even now, people don't take the idea of running out of resources seriously, even though yeah. we are literally on the point of it. So yeah. it's interesting that people ran out of a particular type of natural resource that long ago. Yes. Um, yeah, and the, that, that's my favourite theory. Uh, I don't know if it's true, but I'm going to go with it. Uh, <laughs> there was a lot of ancient alien bullshit, um, which yeah. is racist um as hell and oh, i'm not going to get into it but there was quite a lot of like things that only aliens could have built because poor black people in the past could never have built a pyramid yeah. um but <laughs> we won't get into that no let's just assume that basically european colonizers weren't great at listening to and taking seriously the people they met on their colonizing travels who knew <laughs> um yeah, so there are some quite good ones. Greek fire is another one. No one really knows what that is. That was like a, a classical... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, flamethrower um, that was said to be able to set water on fire. Oh, shit. Yeah. Uh, and every, like there were loads of people who tried to recreate it. Um, that appears in Game of Thrones. Um, I think it also appears in hit film The Shallows. She sets a shark on fire while it's in the sea. So clearly she Amazing. was using Greek fire. But I... Wow. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Don't know what to do with that one, to be honest. Not watch the film it would be my recommendation. All right. Um, I wasn't planning on it. But I, was like, <laughs> I won't. And now I want to watch it, actually. You said that. I was had no interest and now I really want to see <laughs> Uh, it's not the most ridiculous thing that happens if that whets your appetite any further god damn it <laughs> it does it really does a bad influence I'm very uh, sorry <laughs> alright we got three questions left um, uh, this one is also from Nick from Small Town Browse mm-hmm. um, is it your turn to read one or my turn I, can't I think it's your turn Okay. Oh, yeah, it is. Um, and it is, uh, what is the weirdest shit people have pulled to appear attractive? This is such um, a good question. And honestly, we can sit here for the next six and a half weeks. Yep. Um, 
Because there is some weird shit. I maintain that fake tanning is weird as hell. Um, and not just like fake tanning as in putting fake tan on, although that is quite weird, mm-hmm. but going into a cancer box yeah. and for and then blasting yourself with poison rays in order to make your skin darker is crackers. Yes, yes it is. I have a friend who went to get on a sunbird before her wedding and got like it was like the day before or something and um they left her in too long and she got so badly burnt on her bum she couldn't sit down wow i know you see that i don't even particularly like going out in the sun on a general basis on the base i'm like why i don't want to go out into the i remember the ozone hole in the ozone layer like i was brought up in the 90s and i assume but what i learned from that is that poison rays are coming through and they're going to burn me the hole in the ozone layer is over new zealand not over britain I know, but I learned a lot about it and it instilled in me a fear of the sun, basically. See, I am the opposite because I grew up with said hole and getting sunburned in New Zealand. So now that I live in England, I refuse to believe that the English sun is capable of burning anyone because it is just not the harsh reality of, of daylight that I'm used to. So I take skincare not as seriously as I should anymore. <laughs> sunscreen is, is very good i do kind of get fake tan a little bit because it does like it if you're a little bit tanned skin flaws show up less like yeah. cellulite isn't as apparent if your skin is brown that it is if your skin is as pasty white as mine habitually is um <laughs> i'm a very pro like pasty white goth skin basically i am not to the extent (laughs) (laughs) but when it comes to myself i like do get embarrassed about when suddenly it's summer and i want to wear shorts or a skirt but i feel like i'm going to blind people because my skin is so so pale whatever they if you're blinding them then they can't see any imaginary flaws on you so it's all right that is also true yeah if they're like cringing from the reflection of the whiteness of your skin then (laughs) that's even better than tanning (laughs) Because um, then you're like, no cancer rays, and also, no one's looking at your thigh. Win-win. Yeah, yeah that's true. Uh, uh, yeah, but there were some madder ones. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's not the it's not the peak of the pile when it comes to No, bed. putting arsenic on your skin is pretty bonkers. Arsenic on your skin and also arsenic dresses. Arsenic fucking, dresses. I fucking love yeah. an arsenic dress, which is, um, there was a particular period, I think it was during Victorian times, when this particular shade of green was very, very fashionable. But unfortunately, the dye uh, to get that green was made of arsenic. So uh, women were wearing dresses <laughs> that were literally killing them. Wow. Yeah. My top two, I decided, were... Um, there's a big thing in the Victorian period, or kind of early Victorian period, for looking like a corpse... Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was a th- real thing for watery eyes uh, <laughs> as being beautiful. So women used to put citrus juice or belladonna in their eyes in That's order to make them water. A bad idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. Putting belladonna in your eyes, as it turns out, causes blindness. And, and just squeezing <laughs> lemon juice in your eye is so fucking painful. <laughs> I mean, any kind of acid in your eye is not a great idea. Just don't do it. Yeah. So that was quite a good one. Just the idea of women doing this is... Oh, I don't even know. Um, but I also... Um, geisha used to paint their teeth black for certain ceremonies. Um, mm-hmm. And in order to get the right colour of black, they would use the white bit of bird droppings in order to 
Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting choice. Yeah, so you're not only were they painting their teeth black, which is interesting in itself, but they were using bird poo. I've always been fascinated as well by women, and uh, I think this was around sort of Tudor England times, maybe a bit later, uh, when p- women used to pluck their foreheads to um, achieve a high hairline, which was associated, I think, with being of noble birth. Which yeah. has always fascinated me because I have a massive forehead and I cannot imagine <laughs> anyone wanting that by choice and like painfully plucking individual hairs to make it happen. And I know obviously conventional beauty standards alter over time. It's I yeah. am aware of this, but still, you don't you don't want this this bulbous dome that I have. <laughs> yeah, you say that, but then you have like the widespread phenomenon of artificial cranial deformation where people would wrap baby heads into certain shapes so that they would come out like Mm -hmm. pointy yeah that's worse Um, that is definitely worse which is really widespread like very ancient like proto-neolithic skulls have been found which do this and the huns and the alans from the early medieval period while Mm -hmm. they were like bombarding the Roman Empire, they were also wrapping their skulls in order to make them weird and pointy. Which then uh, gets onto the whole area of basically intentionally uh, intentional deformation, uh, like Chinese wrapping of feet. Yeah. Um, because women were supposed to have small, dainty feet. Yes. Uh, which is and... kind of counterproductive because uh, a f- once a foot has been wrapped, it does not look dainty. <laughs> I mean, I, it, it does when it's it. shod, but when it is not shod, it does not look. No, one of the great horrors um, of my teenage years was reading Wild Swans. Have you ever read Wild Swans? Oh, years ago. Um, like there are two real standout bits to do with that, and they're both to do with Young Chang's grandmother, and the, she has wrapped feet. Um, and what um she describes in it having basically because the toes obviously are broken underneath mm-hmm. the toenails grow into the skin oh yeah um and having to peel the broken like toes out and like remove the nails from the skin basically uh, just the horror of that has the other bit is the bit where her grandmother is very ill and becomes very constipated and they don't have any medicine so she has to scrape her grandmother's poo out with her fingernail that's yeah it's not not pleasant times <laughs> It's unrelated, but yeah. uh, <laughs> um, sort of a less yeah. horrific one, but one that just makes me really happy is women used to uh, want to look glazed like a portrait, so they would paint their faces with egg whites. Yeah, to look all shiny, and then keep their skin very, 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 very still. Very still. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, enameling with lead as well is a good one. Yeah. That's a good Victorian one. Yeah. Um, well, and then you'd have to, again, have to keep your face extremely still because if it cracks, it's all coming off. <laughs> Doesn't matter what's killing you anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you probably want it off, but you don't want to be the woman who's at a dinner party and then you laugh at something and then your face cracks like a <laughs> terrifying porcelain doll. <laughs> it's not ideal. Like, I mean, the amount of times that must have happened in the past and like the shame and embarrassment of these women as everybody looks at the crack across their face um and then they get home and like oh god i do not feel well maybe (laughs) yeah i'll put some more lead on to cover up the blemishes and i'm sure it will be fine oh yep yeah poor women with no science (laughs) all right question 10 um 
Oh, it's, oh, we're back to me, aren't we? It's we're back to you. So this is from Connor Walsh. Uh, what Rome, What did Romans have for snack foods while watching the events at the Colosseum? <laughs> what was ancient popcorn? What was ancient popcorn? I'm pretty sure that he is, like, referencing the life of Brian here. Um, and badger's noses mm-hmm. and whatever else is in that. But um, unfortunately, I don't think they had snack sellers, like, in the... Um, no one wandering around with like a tray strapped to their neck. Yeah, selling about. badgers' noses. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they had a lot of kind of portable food, um, and so so Roman food is you would have kind of a very light breakfast, and then your main dinner, like your big main meal, would be your lunch meal, mm-hmm. um, and then in the evening you would have a light meal of kind of a light supper before bed, um, and there's like different patterns of consumption for the rich and the poor. Um, but if uh, the average Roman who weren't having massive feasts all the time, that that would be lunchtime would be your main meal, and there would be no real stuff going on at lunchtime because it's too fucking hot. Mm-hmm. Um, although there were occasionally incidents where there's a great story about Caligula getting really angry with the crowds, and so he pulled back the uh, awnings that were over. This isn't the Colosseum, because it's before the Colosseum was built, but pulled back the awnings that were over the theatre, um, exposing everybody to the bright sunshine, <laughs> uh, and therefore causing loads of people to die from heat stroke. <laughs> Probably not true, but it's quite a good threat. <laughs> that is a good threat. It's a, yeah. I'd um, like to... But, the thing about that is I like picturing that tantrum. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then just lots of people going, like vampires, No! <laughs> Yes, yes, it's very good. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, but they would have, you know, bread is the main thing that they ate, bread and por- kind of a weird porridge. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, nice bread and cheese, probably. Have a, take a nice bit of bread and cheese with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, tons of fruit. Pears are really big on pears. They had like 35 different types of pear. Mm-hmm. Uh, Love a pear. Apples. Grapes, everyone loves a grape. Mm-hmm. And dried grapes, everyone loves a raisin. Yep. Uh, I mean, not everyone. Some, some people are weirdly weirdly hostile to raisins which i do not understand mm, they are wrong people they are so. wrong people uh, lots of nuts could take a pocket full of nuts uh, you can't like take a tupperware thing obviously so they didn't have tupperware uh, and the only things that they really had to carry food around in were big bowls and big jars mm-hmm. um so would they have had would... like kind, kind of waxed paper or something to to wrap things in no okay maybe like a linen or something sure or a, but not really anything that you know, you couldn't put anything wet in anything and then take it with you. No. Um, but you would have, you know, you could take things that you could fit in a pocket or a bag. Yeah. Um, it's nice. You or there would be, you know, there's always markets. You could go and buy some like sweet buns or something. Um, lots of like tasty anything involving honey and nuts. I loved so. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. Um, honey is delicious and nuts are delicious. This is well, a really good smorgasbord of snacks to be honest <laughs> i mean i would eat almost all of it but i don't like honey um you don't like honey no it's repulsive i love bees but i don't like honey at all i don't think i've ever heard of anyone not liking honey before <laughs> um but they didn't have sugar obviously so they didn't mm. have sugar cane um so the only sweetener that they really had other than fruits was honey so mm. they put honey in everything Wow. Honey and or fish sauce, like a, a weird fermented fish sauce that took like three months to make and is actually quite tasty, called garum. This is 
genuinely inspiring me to the next time I have people over, I'm just going to put out a board of like pomegranates and grapes and honey. You totally should. Yeah. And cheeses. Loads of good oh, cheese there. But... Loads of cheeses. Yeah, loads of cheeses. Mm. Um, and some like good bread, not Raymond bread. Raymond bread's kind of disgusting. <laughs> what, is, what is Roman bread like compared to normal uh, bread? It depends on what, again, this is a class issue. Um, mm-hmm. So like good fine wheat was expensive. Um, so if you were reason like poor or average, then you would have quite coarse, quite dark, quite dense mm-hmm. bread. Um, and you only kind of would get light white bread if you were rich. Sure. Um, so yeah, but there, um, there is actually a bit of a loaf of bread survived from Pompeii. It got carbonized. Um, and so you can see it. There's quite a good video on the um, British Museum YouTube channel about making Roman bread. Um, and they tried to recreate the Pompeii loaf because <laughs> it's it's round. And then it has kind of, it's segmented into triangles somehow, like it's marked. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it has a baker's stamp on it. So bakers, when they would make bread, they would stamp some initials or, a, or an identifying mark into the dough before they kicked it so that yeah, people would know that this bread came from this bakery mm, nice yeah uh, but it doesn't look very tasty it looks kind of dense and hard and a bit miserable excellent we have one more question <laughs> one more question yes um this one is from oh. my sister oh is it yeah. <laughs> hi your sister <laughs> which sister uh, my youngest sister tanika Hi, Tanika. Um, I think it's your turn to ask it, though. Oh, it is. Mm. Okay, so Tanika is too much gawking on Twitter. Um, and she says, what's your favourite historical medical treatment? Such a good question. There's so much. Yeah, so, there's so many. Oli- is this Oliver who's written that Romans believed that the blood of fallen gladiators could cure epilepsy? No, I wrote that. Is that you? Is so it- that is true. Oh, that is fantastic. Um, it is indeed true that they believed um, like the blood of gladiators was considered to be like an ultimate healing thing and mm-hmm. epilepsy is one of the things that was considered to be like the, all of the weird things are cures for epilepsy basically like the weirdest dream and cures by miles and the most complicated and the ones that are only really accessible to a very small number of people are all epilepsy cures mm-hmm. Um but yeah, they did. They would get the blood of fallen gladiators and people would sell it for enormous amounts of money. Jesus, I'm sure there was lots of blood that was not actually from gladiators doing the rounds as well. Uh, I am absolutely sure, yes. Um, but they're considered to be almost like near enough sacred. Um, mm. In the. Because people, like. People appreciated gladiators dying. Like, they, it wasn't necessarily. <laughs> cons- like, it's a whole weird thing whereby enormous amounts of gladiators died but they also all like revered them in a way and kind of were impressed by their ability to do it and mm-hmm. their willingness in inverted commas sure. um although this week i was reading um an awful lot about ways in which um because most gladiators were slaves um gladiators committed suicide and the um uh um let's say imaginative ways that they found to uh-huh. not fight in the arena like the only escape that they had was death um, sure. from the arena so they um found very the worst one is a guy who um choked himself on a toilet sponge 
Wow. And I just, the desperation with which you must want to not be alive anymore and to not be in your life in order to take a sponge which is used to wipe people's bottoms and put it down your throat uh, until you die. Also, like, the lack of other options for that, like... Yes. They must... Um, Yeah. Yeah. Because it was a problem, and much like in prisons, really, um, they put yeah. quite a lot of effort into not uh, into keeping them away from things which could they could use to right um, to to take their own life because they're extremely valuable. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. Uh, so yeah, they did believe that they could cure epilepsy, but they also That's believed that touching a woman on her period could relieve gout. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of nice. It kind of warms my heart that there were some people who thought that women being on their periods was a good thing because most yeah. of them were just chucking us off to the woods for five days so we could come back when we were clean. Yeah, or at least a slightly magical thing, which is all right. Yeah. Oh, my, the one that I found fairly recently while I was doing my Agrippina book, so Agrippina died, Agrippina died? Agrippina's first husband died of dropsy, mm-hmm. um, which is like the last stages of renal failure when basically your body swells up from too much retained fluid. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were aware that there was too much fluid in there, but they didn't understand that dropsy was like the final stages of a terrible internal illness. They just saw it as like the thing itself sure and so they would try to give people diuretics um, (laughs) in the hope that they would just wee out all of the liquid that was making them swell out horribly Mm -hmm. um or they would bleed them to try and get the excess liquid out of them basically i mean bleeding is a classic great historical historical remedy because it's so ridiculous and yet it looks so affecting whenever you put it in a film yeah um, but I really like that one because I think it's like the kind of thing that makes total sense. Like there's too much liquid, yeah. So we need to take the liquid out. How do we get liquid out of a body? We do a wee. <laughs> so we give them diuretics. They'll do a big wee, and then they'll be oh, okay. Yeah, and obviously, a hundred percent of the time, never worked. Yeah, because there was something terribly wrong in their insides. But <laughs> but I, I just really like the perfect logic of it. Um, the. What I love about this sort of stuff is when you discover the things that did work, which we now know why. So this is what something that I heard on Sawbones, which is a medical history podcast. It's very interesting. I highly recommend it. But they were talking about um, thyroid problems and goiters. And in a lot of ancient societies, I think predominantly um, Asian ones, I think, I think India and I think also Japan treated goiters with seaweed. Um, and that was just like their home remedy for ages. But it turns out that the reason that 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 was a valid ancient remedy is because thyroid problems are often caused by a lack of iodine and seaweed is full of iodine. So they they would have had no idea why it works because they didn't have the science to break, break, I mean, break it down on a cellular level, obviously, but, but it did. There you go. That reminds me of my favorite theory of why Rasputin was so... Um, effective at keeping Alexei, Prince Alexei, um, healthy, mm-hmm. which is that the theory goes that they would they were giving Alexei tons of aspirin because aspirin had just been invented and it was considered to be a cure-all, basically. Mm-hmm. Like it was a magic drug. Um, but obviously aspirin is a blood thinner and was making his condition considerably worse. Yeah. Um, and so when Rasputin was there, his only thing was to say, keep doctors away from him. Don't let the doctors give him anything. So um, he stopped taking aspirin. So he stopped taking aspirin and therefore he would recover. 
um, and yeah. So because there's a like the classic miracle that Rasputin did was when he was away in Siberia and Alexei got ill and the Tsarina uh, messaged him and was like, you need to help. And he sent a message back and said, right, I'm on my way. I'm sending like my prayers and keep the doctors away from him. Um, mm-hmm. And he miraculously got better. Um, yeah. But the only concrete thing he did was keep the doctors away from him. <laughs> so <laughs> whatever the doctors were doing was obviously making it worse. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah there's a lot of weird stuff that people did but i think i like the ones which are perfectly kind of logical in a way yeah especially if if they're found if they're they're logical but based on a starting principle that is not true like yeah how basically the fact that so long medicine was based on the theory of the four humors yeah which is not a sound theory but no. <laughs> the steps they took because of that followed the theory really well but didn't work yeah. because it was a bullshit bit of yeah because there's no black bile is not a problem that <laughs> actually affects me <laughs> yeah neither is having too much blood so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um but i mean that could this one could be a whole episode a couple of the questions that we got i think we're going to do whole episodes on so one of them was about um did the Nazis really put so as much energy into hunting down things like the Sword of Destiny, um, mm-hmm. as is shown in films? And the answer to that is they absolutely did, yes. <laughs> um, so we're going to do an episode about that because the kind of amount of energy that the Nazi regime formally and officially put into weird occult stuff like trying to find and protect the spear that stabbed Christ... Um, is extraordinary. <laughs> um, there obviously is also tree panning, which is I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but it involves drilling in people's skull for yes, for just reasons. Yes, um, lots of reasons. Some people do it for like transcendental experiences, mm-hmm. uh, and some people do it to like let the ghosts out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, a lot of the medical stuff is about letting ghosts out. Babylonians believe that. Uh, illnesses and even bad habits like grinding your teeth were caused by demons so they would sleep next to human skulls in order to exercise those demons and they would kiss and lick the skulls to make it more effective that's horrible it's horrible but then i was um i was like talking to my cousin about this the other day that um like it was a, a it's a very classic ancient practice the babylonians did it the greeks did it to um sleep in the temple of uh, a god in order to receive a dream to tell you how to cure your disease um so the god is uh, asclepius in uh, greek religion um, mm-hmm. which is still the the sign of asclepius which is like the snake going around the rod that oh, is yeah. still there yeah mm-hmm. um but you would sleep or you would dedicate a token which represented the thing that was hurting to the god in mm-hmm. the hope so around roman and greek temples a lot you'll find um just lots of little ears and legs and um hands and feet and things made out of clay and iron that were dedicated as like i i offer you this so that you'll cure my whatever (laughs) Uh, right we've gone on for ages we have um so next week we're going to do the oh not next week but the week after we'll do the episode that we promised you this week Yes, and we are going to have um, a music expert. We're going to have Dr. Anna Scott um, from Leiden 
she is going to come and talk to us about classical music because she is an expert in music and how the way that music is played changes mm-hmm. um which i'm excited to have a like yeah and a new person an expert person expert. on something other than raymond's yeah expert guest time it's very exciting yeah um, um yeah and that's from daniel potter um so yeah but if you have any questions short or long then you can send them to us at at sexy history pod on twitter or uh sexy history pod at gmail.com mm-hmm. or you can tweet us individually i am j9andf and i am nuclear teeth and oliver who is getting married and will not quite be married by the time this comes out but is about to be married uh, next week to his lovely future wife barbara is at at Kiwa. So tweet at him and tell him congratulations. Yeah, tweet at him and tell him congratulations because that's really exciting. It's very um, exciting. And lovely. Um, and also ask him about Austrian marriage rituals because he's been texting me them and they are really fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and you can, if you find us on iTunes and like us and review us and all the rest of it, then we really appreciate that. You can... We, I really like it when people send us messages to tell us that we're good. Um, yeah, so please do that. So, yeah. Um, and this is an essentially unedited version of <laughs> Sexy History Pod. Thank you very much for listening. Bye. Bye.